So the three of us will field questions at this point, and um, I think one of the, the question we had at the break, maybe you just want to pose it. How are you? How you're? Um, yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, this has been a fabulous tour de force of you know, so the whole landscape, and I really appreciate it. And my issue that I'm struggling with a little these days is that you know, I've treated about 10 patients so far. I, I do mainly HIV and starting to do the Hep C. Um, our health department's starting to subsidize it so we get patient assistance. Um, and I'm just trying to be sort of practical. It seems like, you know, a bunch of the people are really easy. No complications, no real health issues. Um, yeah, and I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's this second group where, like, their Fib fours are intermediate. We don't have access to a fiber scan. Um, but, it, you know, it, it seems like even that group up to compensated cirrhosis is pretty easily treated. And also, it seems like from what the data you're showing is big benefits in terms of stabilizing their or arresting the progression of their cirrhosis. So that group I'm okay with. But it seems like this getting this complicated group, it's sort of so let's, let's over. So we have somebody who's got a, um, a fiber score, fiber test score of 0 0.5. You know, so they're not, is that what you're saying? So they're in between there or somebody's got more cirrhosis? Well, I'm saying we usually can't get those. I and mean, we're just yeah. usually doing the Fib 4s. You're and stuff, winging and, it. And they'll be in that intermediate range. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like there's a lot of, you know, you just be a little more careful with them, but there's not like a big risk. It's it's this group that's yeah. the real it's, decompensated or close to decompensated cirrhotics right. that gets pretty tricky. Yeah, it's the decompensation or the B, which you can read reach just by laboratory values, even without an event, um, that that then precipitate like much more care, additional considerations of treatment, additional ribavirin. Um, I mean, as an ID person, I end up treating those patients. Some of those patients were kicked out of GI clinic because they no-showed. And, um, you know, we're in a high-access sort of region in terms of medical care. Um, if you're their only access, I think you do end up at least needing to think about it, counsel, if they can't make it to that next step. Um, I don't know. You, you could think about whether you could do ribavirin. And well, that's the issue. It's like when you're faced, you know, yeah. nothing or... Or you yeah, for the patient, you know, it's either nothing or, it. right, they can't do these extra steps. They can't make the trips to the transplant center and whatnot. And I, I can say, state it, virtually every workshop, there's someone in the community trying to have a patient in mind that they're experiencing these sort of extra problems with. And like, um, so some hepatologists, we have one great one, Ken Sherman, who says, I'll give you my phone number and I'll help you manage from Cincinnati um, if you don't have access to someone. Um, I'll, yeah, I mean, I can't. I'm, I'm honestly pretending to be a hepatologist today, and um, and the reason why you're hearing a little bit of like variability in terms of like who gets EGD and whatnot. I've sat through five different talks by five different people, and they all get different answers, whether it's AFP or and it's amazing. But so I'm trying to give you a synthesis of at least how I would approach it, and I've ended up treating as an ID person very sick patients. Um, and and in your experience, it's it's they're not as complicated as they might seem from well, it's doable. you've done it, or they can be. I guess since I came from the interferon era, I think everything's easy compared to now. But nonetheless, um, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's possible. I mean, you just monitor those patients more closely. Rather, you might go to weekly labs if on ribavirin, and you know, there's sort of extra things you might do, uh, at least with CBC. And then creatinine's really important. Ribavirin does need careful dosing with renal failure. But we learned a lot about that from the interferon era. And there actually is residual information 
although it's a subset of patients, on how to manage patients with ribavirin in the guidance, in the monitoring section. Uh, ribavirin, of course, for young people is an issue for childbearing. Uh, it's teratogenic and whatnot, so. I, I guess the last question was, so if you can't do the full evaluation and, and you've got these intermediate yeah. people, it seems like you should probably be a little safe and have them get the surveillance like they have, compensated cirrhosis, yeah. if you're not sure. Yeah. How far are you from Florida? I'm in Florida. You're in Florida, so. Yeah. Okay. Depends on what part of Florida, right? Some are closer than others. Um, I don't, I mean, it might be in Orlando. Pardon? Northeast, like south of uh, Jackson. Jacksonville. So Mayo Jackson. Yeah, like Daytona. Mayo Jacksonville, I thought, was very active. In fact, yeah. we had some patients dual listed in New England, which has a higher melt threshold than Jacksonville, because I told you why they have a lower threshold for transplant. So we had people flying back and forth, and we also have people doing that anyway, because they're snowbirds and love Florida. But. So um, anyways, um, I do think that, um, that A, I don't know if Mayo Jacksonville would be willing to take a look at this situation for you. I think that the, might be one approach. The other thing is that sometimes um, hospital radiology departments have elastography with their ultrasound that you might not know unless you ask. So yeah. you could scan around, no pun intended, your local uh, hospital scene and see if, some, if they have that type of they, they're getting right. payment for it's a whole other thing, but that's yeah. Well, you know, in fact, I mean, one of the s several, I mean, one of the strategies a number of health departments in Florida are doing is they have no budget for this, yeah. as uh, you know, as of now, but they may come. They're scrounging up money, doing it for free, and then trying to get the drugs through patient assistance. So they even have some protocols out there like no genotype testing because they can double the number of patients they process. Right. You know, and so they have a super streamlined. Workup. So um, and no ultrasounds. We, we should probably add this, but um, there's a whole concept of what we're calling simplification. So what I just described seems pretty simple, but can it be taken the next level of simplification? Meaning we minimally monitor patients. Right now, the guidance would suggest that you get a HCV RNA at four weeks. Well, we're learning after thousands of patients how often does that change management. So you know, there's sort of like that could save you a few hundred dollars per patient. Um, do you need to just do phone check-ins? I mean, with minute costs, that's minimal. It's time costs, but maybe that's all you need for safety monitoring is a quick phone check-in. Do you even need that? You know, these are kind of the questions that are now being asked. Tennessee is facing a lot of the same problems, and they are trying to address Hep C in a, in a big way. There's great advocates on the state level as well as an echo-type project, and I guess you're tied in. Are you tied in with this southeast sort of Cody Chastain project here? Yeah. Cody, um, so Cody's kind of like Eric, you know, a provider ID type of guy, and then, um, and they've, they actually literally have a chart of how they've simplified things for patients and how to do this at a low cost level for virtually uninsured patients. And so that chart, if they're willing to share it through this network, I think would be very helpful. I've just seen it. So I, but it may be something we, we share with you all in the future as that gets validated. That would be great because, yeah. you know, if you got a budget of 10,000 hours, you might be, it might make the difference between treating 40 and 20 Absolutely. patients. And that's exactly what they're thinking about. Tennessee has a similar rate of a non-Medicaid expansion state having uninsured. Okay. So, um, so I would, I don't know if, I could email Cody and see if they're willing to share it with you all, but I mean, it's, Tennessee has it all laid out in, a, in an algorithmic form. It's really nice. This is another patient. Are we done? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I guess just to get it on the mic. Um, so kind of going back to my patient that is a genotype 1A, treatment naive, 
on carbamazepine, which interacts with everything and everything else, um, patient does not want to get off. So I guess if you want to, on the record, <laughs> say which, what you think. Because um, we, we, we've had, obviously, the conversation of there are other options, what can we do? And I think he switched off at some point and symptoms came back and he's like, I do not want to go back to that. Well, you'll want to get a really good documentation of this conversation, you know, that the, the patient understands the risks of, of being treated um, in the absence of data because there aren't enough data here. Um, but I think you could um, consider using a double dose of lidipasvir sofosbuvir um, for your particular patient with genotype 1A. And I would consider using ribavirin to cover for the reduced exposures um, of the lidipasvir and potentially with sofosbuvir in that setting. Um, yeah, and you, you said your patient also had HIV, right? So they're on dalutegravir? Okay. Or trimethyl. Yeah, well... It's going to be, you know, a tough one, but um, there is a group in San Diego, as I mentioned, um, UCSD. They have a patient with bipolar who will not get off oxcarbazepine. And um, they uh, were also on a dolutegravir-based regimen. They've added a booster just to give some extra kind of, um, I mean, lodiposphere is only 30% metabolized by CYP3A, so it's not going to add a whole lot, but it, it may add some, may add some benefit. I mean, it's just so difficult because you can't, you don't want to um, not treat the patient, but if they're unwilling to switch, then this is just one potential. Is ritonavir and carbamazepine, how does that work? Yeah, it'll be reduced. It'll be I reduced, mean, the exposures yeah. will be reduced, but yeah. um, maybe it gives, you know, some type of blockage of CYP3A, yeah. which, or any potentially PGP, yeah. which may help. Yeah. I'm just thinking of every possible way to try to, and no PPI. <laughs> yeah, oxcarbazepine is one of the most frequently encountered medications, much more than amiodarone or some other red flag. Yeah. Uh, oxcarbazepine is one of the most. Rifampin came up a few times, but usually that's circumscribed, like they're on it for a while, and then you stop it. So, um, and St. John's wort doesn't seem to be used anymore. Yeah, we talked about that. So that's a really good question. So I am not aware of any um, laboratories that are doing it real time. We have a method to measure lodiposphere sofosbuvir, so I can do it, but it's not under our CLIA program because we are not participating in the quality assurance program for that. So um, I could give you the levels after the fact. If you want to publish a case report, it'd be really helpful. Other thoughts, cases you've encountered, tough things that you're up against? This is more just a question. I saw on one slide somewhere the word vaccine. Um, is there yeah. any hope for vaccine development? I can talk to that. Um, so there is hope. Uh, so A and B, as you know, we have great vaccines. But hep C is much more diverse than um, hepatitis B or even HIV. And we don't have a vaccine against HIV, at least one that's really working. And so the variability of the virus is a major issue. So the one that's been developed is uh, designed against genotype 1B, and it's being tested right now in uh, persons who inject drugs in Baltimore and in San Francisco. There may be results, um, we're thinking liver meeting next year, which is one year from now, um, after they unblind and determine, because there's a placebo group. What it's based on is like uh, T cells. So T cells make the CD4 and CD8, and then B cells make antibodies, so it's a kind of rough immunology. We know these patients all make antibodies, but they don't seem to be doing much, right? So unlike measles antibody, varicella antibody, you know, th that, those are helpful. But in this case, 
hep C antibodies, not what you're aiming for. Now, there are neutralizing antibodies that can also help, but together with a T cell based vaccine, and a, um, that, that's what's being tested right now, and so we may hear about it. Who would take it? That's the thing. Like, who's going to market this? Already the big pharma that owned it kind of spun it off, and so we're not sure what the market would be. Would healthcare workers want it, you know, for those needle sticks? I don't know the answer to that. Um, but should dialysis patients get it? I mean, there's sort of some markets, but it's really a pretty limited subset in terms of a market. So I, you know, in terms of like development, does the government need to step in? And that's what they did. So they are funding this trial. It's an right. NIH-funded thing. So um, yeah, it's a funny story of how, why it got funded. It's not the best story, but um, so there is hope. And the real prevention right now is harm reduction. I mean, it's the bottom line. That's that's what we've got. And um, and at least the evidence seems to indicate that that works. Layer on a vaccine, and then layer on more treatment so that if they relapse, the person next to them is less likely to have hep C in the community, just like any other infectious disease, right? That would be what the toolbox we have today outside of the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I'm usually an optimist, but this situation has two strikes against it right off the bat. One is that, um, We've seen over and over that people who have had actual infection, which is probably about as good a vaccine as you're going to get, get reinfected. Now, you could argue that maybe you could prime the protective yeah. parts of the immune system to protect, but yeah. until proven otherwise, there's, bio, you know, there's experience evidence that yeah. they you, aren't, it ain't going to be 100%. You can clear it better the second time around. <clears throat> yeah. However, it's, if it's the same genotype. So that's the other problem I didn't mention is genotype 1. Genotype 3 looks pretty different on a molecular level, and while the the vaccine developers think they've targeted the right places that can do both. I'm concerned. I mean, 30% of new infections in young persons who inject drugs are phenotype 3. So, I mean, like, could we just end up shifting everyone towards 3? I don't know. Yeah. We have good drugs against 3, both GP and soft L, but um, it's still, like... The, the second know. strike is just more practical, that um, vaccines are um, high liability for the companies because you take broad swaths of populations and untoward events are going to happen and sometimes really bad events happen and they don't want to take that type of risk unless they know the market's going to be big enough for them to absorb and I'm not sure we'll get to that. I think that's probably why the big pharma company... Yeah, they kind of spun it off. They owned it. Yeah. It's now... It's, it's an interesting question. Other patients' questions, thoughts in general? Well, there's great hope for patients, right, if you think about the data that we just showed. So um, I, think, yeah. I think that's a main message. That it really is. And I think that I think everybody, you leave this room and you're thinking, why don't we just eradicate hepatitis C? We can. You know, biologically and clinically, we can do this if we just test everyone, get them into care, <clears throat> and, and treat them. One way to flip this around so that it makes more, even more sense is, Play the game of asking the question, what if these drugs cured HIV? You know, we've been pushing for a cure of HIV since the beginning, and we're not really all that close right now. But let's say all of a sudden there's a breakthrough, boom, and you can give one pill once a day for 12 weeks and 99% cure. How would the world react to that? How would clinicians react to that? How would patients react to that? Right? And yet we don't see anything like we would imagine that to be for hepatitis C. But there's four times as many people in the United States infected with hepatitis C. 
What are we doing? Really, yeah. think about it. Well, it's because they lack a voice, don't you think? And then, so who can be their advocates? I think you're kind of stuck with us, and we're very busy, busy people. But at least, you know, um, there, there isn't the same advocacy. So I think it takes, like, these sort of things, yeah. talking to folks and trying to have people understand. I mean, 30,000 Americans dying, you know, fifth leading cause Each of year. death in, in patients, people between 50 Each and 65. Year. I mean, just 20 years of lost life expectancy associated with hep C, and we can reverse it. So then, then you say, well, what's the major barrier? Well, there's some smaller barriers, like getting enough people to feel comfortable treating, which is what this is about. But the biggest barrier is just access. And the access, I think, is a lot of it due to cost. And the, let's say, play another mind game. Let's say the cost of therapy universally for eight weeks or 12 weeks of therapy is $100, less than a Shinrix test or vaccine. Then what would it, would it look like? It'd be completely different. And so other countries have adopted, like Australia, a situation where they made a deal with, I believe it was Gilead, but it almost doesn't matter, made a deal with one of the companies to where they say, we will give you the company, I think it was $800 million. And for that amount of, you're guaranteed that amount of money. And what we want in return is three or four years of ad-lib access to medication for everybody who lives in Australia for a period of time. So everybody was motivated. The providers were motivated to test. They were motivated to treat. And as everyone heard about this, everyone wanted to get tested so that they had it, they could get cured. And they will probably eradicate hepatitis C from the continent by 2020 or 2021. So it can be done. It's just, it's economics in a way. So if you leave with not only knowledge about hep C, hopefully, and drug-drug interactions and all kinds of things, um, you know, be, if you can, be passionate about pushing for solutions here and, and become an advocate. It's really important. All right, on that, yes. Has anyone had issues retreating anyone and getting coverage? No? Okay. I know a little, like in the beginning, it was a little bit of a struggle. Yeah, yeah the, the one and done policies are very negative, especially for patients, because they hear about it. And even in our state, which is not one and done, there's a significant subset who believe that it's like only one chance. And then they'll say, well, I really need to be in a better place to be treated. Um, and then they're out there transmitting it, <laughs> you know, or, you know, progressing in terms of their liver. And so uh, those policies are, are pretty negative. And so, um, when you look at the data and you accept that 5% of these high-risk populations may need retreatment, you can do the math and still achieve the benefits. If you don't try at all, that's kind of where you run into problems. But yeah, one-and-done policies seem to be disappearing across different states, but um, uh, I'm glad you guys don't seem to be there. Remember, you guys are a B plus, pretty good. Much better than Georgia, or what are your neighbors? Florida. Florida, yeah, Florida's a D maybe? Georgia. I don't, Georgia's probably, I, I, this is the grading on like access to hep C therapies. Uh, my state's an A minus, there are others that are A's, it all goes down. South Carolina actually achieved B plus, so you guys are. Um, I was just going to say that um, at the free clinic, we don't have any um, insurance or ability mm -hmm. to pay, so we get the medications free through the company. Yeah. Um, Gilead. Is that the right name? Yeah. Gilead. Yep. 
There's will not great patient the, assistance programs um, from both companies. Will not give yeah. it to the patient twice. They won't? Oh, okay. No. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Before we finish up here, so um, you're going to get an email from ISUSA for claiming your CE credits for today. Um, remember the participant information forms. Turn those in before you leave. In a few business days, you'll be able to access the cases from today. And you will receive within the next month um, an evaluation. Please complete that for us. And then if you um, are, have tapped into these, um, you'll recognize that they're a really great way to earn CE from the comfort of your home or office. Um, this is an ISUSA webinar, the last one for the year, and it will be an update from AASLD um, on December 4th. Okay, and that's it. So thank you all very much for coming today. It was a pleasure to meet you all. Yeah, great, great crowd.